Guys, I, I just want to jump right into prayer and right into this message as we're continuing our study about the end, very specifically a mini-series within a series on heaven. Okay, so let's do that. Join me with me in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the richness and the depth of your word. I thank you for its truth. Your, your word says that your truth brings freedom. And I pray, Father, for some of us, we need that freedom. Tonight, Lord God, we're going to be talking about heaven, but as it would relate to our present. And I just ask you, Father, in that meeting of these two gods, speak truth to our hearts and encourage them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Awesome. So, story is told about a bus driver and a pastor. Yes, here's another one about a pastor. Pastors always find themselves before the pearly gates. But these two found themselves before the pearly gates. And Peter welcomes the bus driver and he says, we've got something very special for you as a bus driver. And I guess he was wearing the base, uh, a bus driver hat. That's how he could tell. I don't know. And he says, you see that mansion at the top of that hill? And the guy looks at it and he says, that? He says, and Peter says, yes, that is yours. And the man was so excited. The pastor standing next to him thinking, wow, I can hardly wait for it to be my turn. No sooner did he say that, but it's his turn. And Peter says, oh, you must be the pastor. Okay, well, your, your reward, do you see that little bungalow down there in the valley? That, that's yours. And the pastor looked at it. There was a hint of disappointment. He said, I'm sorry, Peter. Man, I, I mean, at least I tried really preaching the gospel, and I, I did my best teaching the people on Sunday mornings. I mean, at least my best. And the guy says to him, he says, well, you know, Peter, I guess the, the, it, it seems that when, when you preached, the people slept, but when the dr bus driver drove, the people prayed. So, these two were believers in Jesus. They were called, according to what we've been looking at in Revelation 21. So turn there with me, Revelation 21. They're called the bride of Christ. You, as believers, we are called the bride of Christ. I'll be honest with you, I, there's a hint of a little bit of uncomfortableness in, in me. I'm also called, we are called the wife, the wife. The bride of the lamb. And it just feels a bit awkward, but I understand the implication because these are metaphors. I am not literally, just so you know, a wife. You are not literally a wife. We are spiritually that, though, with Christ because of the intimacy that we now have found in Christ. And we are that New Jerusalem, that holy city that is coming down out of heaven from God to the earth. Now remember, this isn't just any earth, this is the renewed earth. We're not sitting and laying around in lounge chairs, sipping iced tea, sweet iced tea, by the way, on clouds. All right? Just erase that picture that the medieval paintings of heaven have put in your mind. Not happening at all. Heaven comes to earth. The operative word here is restoration. So key, church. Um, restoration is going to be the key to our eternal home. In one passage, Acts 3.21, it's called a renewal to the original. Okay? It's a restoration to once what was. 
It is a regenesis, according to Matthew 19, 27. A regenesis, palingenesia, a beginning again. This means that what we saw in Genesis 1 through 2, not 3, 1 through 2, that earth is what we are going to receive again. Now let me just say that not everybody understands this idea of heaven on earth being an earth being a restored paradise. If you ever saw the TV show series, and I do not recommend it, called The Good Place, Eleanor and her friends in the very last episode find themselves finally in heaven. And there they are. They've been there for a hundred thousand years. And they have all come to the conclusion, Eleanor, I guess, I think being the last one, comes to this conclusion, heaven is tedious, it is boring, they have done everything that they have ever wanted to do too many times, and she and her friends have chosen annihilation. Church, how sad, because Hollywood is painting a false picture of what heaven will one day be like. Completely false. You will never be bored. Never tedious. Things will be new. We don't know. God may be continually creating. There's so much more that we want to get into. We will be doing that over the next coming weeks. Let me read a quote to you from Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov, as a kid, I enjoyed Isaac Asimov because he was a wonderful science fiction writer, but he was also an atheist. I didn't know that at the time. Regardless, Isaac Asimov says this, I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Revelation 13.6 says that Satan's goal, listen to this, Satan's goal, among many things, but Satan's goal is this, to slander God and to slander his dwelling place. See, that's heaven. That is Satan's goal. Did you realize this? Satan wants the world to see a picture of heaven that is something they do not want. They do not want to live their lives. Why sacrifice the pleasures of all of this world to get to spend eternity in a place that you will hate? Maybe even more than hell. And so the world thinks, but I'm going to choose hell. I'm going to get to party with my friends. So not only do they slander heaven, but they completely mischaracterize hell. But the problem there, church, and you know this, that once they arrive at their eternal destination, there is no further opportunity to change their mind. That is where they will spend forever. There's one more belief in our day, in the church itself, that from my perspective, slanders heaven as well. And I want you to just bear with me. Give me one minute as I unwrap this. Some of you have heard about this. You're aware of this. Very popular belief in Christendom. They generally call it old earth creationism. Now you're, many of you are familiar with that, and you're probably scratching your head, Mike, what does that have to do with heaven? 
Can I just say that most people who embrace this belief say the same question. They ask the same question. What on earth does that have to do with heaven? Well, let me just say that if indeed the geologic column is 500 million years, 550 million years from the Cambrian to the present, they say they have discovered, and I believe this, they've discovered dinosaur bones buried but they say, not during Noah's flood, of course not, but 165 million years before man, sin, and the curse. That tells me that cancer preceded the curse. That the curse didn't cause cancer. See, God did. God created an imperfect world. But Deuteronomy 32.4 says, all God's works are perfect. That Hebrew word for perfect means without blemish or free from blemish or defect. See, church, the, the, the earth is young. Cancer did not appear until after the fall and God's originally created earth was perfect and without defect. If we picture the earth, the original earth, paradise itself, as completely imperfect with death, with disease, bacteria and viruses that are detrimental, that kill? Is this what God is going to renew the earth to? Church, absolutely not. God created a perfect world because his works are perfect. That is the world, that is the earth that will be renewed. I, what I want us to do right now is I want us to now look at our passage, understanding that this is on a restored earth as we understand restoration to the original. So follow with me. Revelation chapter 21, starting with verse 22. I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 22 as well. So 21 verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. When the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him they will see his face oh we're going to need to get into that in a coming sermon they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads there will be no more night there will, there will not, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
We discovered last week that even as the bride and the wife were symbols, they were metaphors, not to be taken literally, we also saw Jesus as a lamb. Not that he's a literal lamb, but he symbolizes that sacrifice for the nations. So too we realize that this new Jerusalem was not a literal city, but it was a picture of the kingdom of God. Just outside its gates is what? Is it flowing, rolling, is it flowing waters and rolling green hills? And is it mountains? No, chapter 22, verse 15 says that it's hell outside its gates. That tells me that something's wrong with this picture if we take the city literally even apart from the fact that it's 1,400 miles tall. It's 12,000 stadia. There's symbolism in that. We looked at that. Now, I'm gonna, what I want to do then is I want to st- draw out some more symbols, and today I'm going to focus on just one of them. Over the next ensuing weeks, we're going to go back <clears throat> to what we looked at last week and this week, and we're going to look at one, maybe two, of these different symbols and flesh them out. And you're going to see the depth of what heaven is going to be like when we properly understand these symbols and what they're saying to us. Again, today we're just going to choose one. So as you look in your Bibles, the first thing that we come across is that there's not going to be any temple. There has been a temple. Actually, Moses' temple was fashioned after the heavenly temple, but there will be no temple. Now, I'm not suggesting that there, is, that there would be no literal temple figuratively he's trying to say something here because it was in the temple that the holy place which was man's place butted up against the most holy place which was God's dwelling separated by the curtain separated by that division that at the cross was torn in two And man now has free fellowship with God. And so that's what we're seeing here is that there's not going to be the need for the symbolism of the temple. It is going to be right there. We are going to have intimate fellowship with God. We're going to have intimacy with him. We're going to be worshiping him. But I'm going to suggest as focused and paramount and as important as that idea is of us dwelling with God and more God dwelling with us. As important and central of an idea is that that's not the only thing that we're going to be doing in heaven. And we're going to discover that there is so much that we're going to be doing. But the heart of it all, church, is this focus on a restored relationship, and I believe a growing relationship with Jesus, with God himself throughout eternity. So the symbolism here is there's not going to be the need for that temple because God's going to be here. We're going to be intimate with him. And I would suggest even growing in that intimacy throughout eternity, whatever that would even look like. No sin, no stumbling block, no barrier between us and God. It says that there will be no need for the sun and moon. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be a sun. There's not going to be a moon. It's just that there's not going to be a need for it. What did the sun and the moon do? The sun, according to Genesis 1, governs the day. The moon governs the night. Now, I just want you to think about this. If this is a restored paradise, a restoration to the original... The original had a sun, a moon, and the stars. It did have night and day. So 
is he trying to contradict that? See, if we're going to take it literally, I'm going to suggest it will. But, so what is he trying to say? What is he, through symbolism, speaking to us? He is saying that light is basically, and this is what John says throughout his gospel, by the way, is truth and righteousness. That is going to, that what, that's what guides us, guys. That is the lamp unto our feet. It is the light of the gospel. It is the light, the truth that Jesus preached. It is truth that sets us free, moves us from sin into righteousness. It is truth and it is righteousness. And it is going to be everywhere. Heaven, 2 Peter 3 says, heaven will be the home of righteousness. That's where we're going to dwell. Filled with truth, filled with righteousness. And we're going to need to understand this idea of being filled with truth in another time. But wow, powerful. No need for the sun, no need for the moon, because Jesus himself will be that light. That is, Jesus himself will be that truth and that righteousness. Another symbol. It says that, there will, that the gates will always be open. Again, if we're going to take the city, not literally, but as a symbol, we're going to need to take these gates symbolically as well. What is he trying to say to us? Do you know when cities close their gates? It actually even tells us here. They close them at night. Do you know why they close them at night? They do that to keep the enemy out, spies out, anything that could harm out, because it's dark and it's hard to see them at night so close the gates in case, in case there's a surprise attack. Close the gates in case the enemy tries to sneak in. Because it's hard to see faces. It's hard to see who people are as they come through the gate at night. So the idea here is that the gates will always be open because in essence there's not going to be any darkness. Meaning there's not going to be any sin, there's not going to be any enemy, there's not going to be any harm that's going to come to us. And so we're going to live in a world that God has created for us in which sin and evil and anything that could harm us will be completely gone. Absent, no more, forever. It's the enemy, it's Satan, it's demons. It's disease, it's natural evil as well as moral evil that attacks, that hurts, that comes in and wreaks havoc. No more of that. No more. Only safety. No need to fear, no need to worry. Church, what would it be like if you put your head down at night every time, and, and I think that we will be needing rest, I could be wrong on that, but I don't see any reason why would, we would not. I do think that there is going to be a day and a night. There will be a moon and a sun, but there won't be a need for them symbolically because Jesus will be everything that we will need. No harm, no darkness in that sense. But when you put your head down at night, you won't be thinking about the mistakes that you made that day how you hurt people, how you wish that you could take back what you said to your spouse because you were angry. 
You're not going to be laying your head down at night wondering if you're going to be able to pay the bills. And when the electricity, and, and if the electricity would be cut off because you just didn't make enough money the last several months. There's no need. You're not going to be worrying when you put your head down at night for fear that you could lose your job for fear that maybe God is upset with you and cast you into hell. That maybe the enemy is going to come in and he's going to attack and he's going to hurt and he's going to rob you of people that you love. He's not going to be able to do that ever again. Gone. Putting your head down at night. Resting in peace. Absolutely peaceful. Enjoying the crickets. The sounds of the night. Just enjoying the peace, the safety, no fear, no worry. This says that kings will walk by God's light, that is his truth and righteousness, and they'll bring their glory into the city. That even the nations, look at the text there, even the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. What is that? Marla, what glory are you going to bring into the eternal kingdom? Patty, what glory and honor are you going to bring into the kingdom? Meredith, what glory and honor are you going to bring into the kingdom? We feel a bit sheepish. What? I don't have any glory. See, you do. Especially then. Remember Romans 8, it says when we get to heaven, it says God is going to reveal, reveal in us glory because on this earth he is developing and he's transforming us from glory to glory into the image of christ do you realize that when god made adam and eve they were filled with glory do you know why they were because they were made perfectly in the image of god they were image bearers of their creator they reflected him now jesus reflects him perfectly and for that reason he perfectly reflects the glory of god of course even being god himself so his glory is perfect we are a reflection of that glory we're like the moon if he's the sun you follow what i'm saying there jesus has made us in his image that's what genesis 1 tells us come let us make man in our own image the godhead counseling with one another let's make man in our image what is the image of god the image of god is what sets sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom the image of god perfectly restored is without sin without corruption it would be as i've been hinting at it would be character love joy peace but perfect. It would be intelligence or sentience unhindered by sin. It would be godly emotions, not sinful anger or fear that controls. It would be creativity. God the creator made us to be creative. God created things that we would discover them. We're going to need to delve into these things as far as unwrapping, what does it mean then in, the, in this new kingdom here on earth, this new heaven, this restored earth, for us to fully express the glory of God? So, in part, 
the nations and all that they began to do, all that they discovered. See, just discovery, invention, is what God created us to do. Why is it that guys don't do this quite as much as they do in the past, but they, they always wanted to build their own homes? Man, I'm just trying to think. I would never build my own home now, but so many guys still do that. Maybe a lost art, but there's something inside that wants us to create and for many women to create things in their home and for men to craft things. See, this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. The animal kingdom does not possess that type of creativity. They would be more utilitarian. Let's just make something and it's more instinctual. Make something because we need it. We want to make it beautiful. We want to make it nice. When you craft, I, I like working with wood, and I like, it to, I like it to look just right. I hate making mistakes because I want to create something that's beautiful. I do a job in which I have to create something that's beautiful, at least in the customer's eyes, or they're going to reject it, and I don't get paid. This is part of what it means to be image bearers, that we have pure aesthetic perspective. That's my phrase that basically means Guys, we love beauty. We are drawn to beauty. Guys, you better be nodding your head, looking at your wife. Yes, I am. That's why I married her. One of the reasons. Yep. We are drawn to beauty. And, and women, it's okay to say your husband's beautiful. Okay. We understand what you mean. That actually is a term that they used for men back in the day. We don't use it anymore. We say handsome regardless. Guys, by the way, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. J j just get over that, but you're beautiful. And, and in heaven, we're going we're gonna to be uh, drawn to beauty. We're going to be drawn to... Some of you, you, you like to dabble in painting or in sculpting or in creating something like this of beauty. And you're going to have all of eternity to develop that. Maybe some of you have longed, well, I wish I could make guitars. What do they call them, luthiers? Or, ah, I can't remember the exact term, but they love, they create guitars. You're going to be, you can create, you're going to have all of eternity to, to do this. This is the image of God. We're gonna, we have the capacity for skill. We have the capacity for language, relationships. See, this is in part, there's other things, this is in part what it means to be made in the image of God. This is, what, this is how we bring glory to God. Not, we don't bring glory into the kingdom just by praising God. But we do it because the glory is in us. And we want to glorify the glorious one. See, God's glory prompts us to glorify him. But there is a glory in us being made in his image. That image will be completely restored. I want you to look closely now at chapter 22. I'm going to say something right now that some of you will disagree, and I'm okay with that. My goal isn't to try and just prove you that, that you know, I'm right and you must be wrong. But I want you to consider if we're looking at the kingdom, at this city, symbolically that is the kingdom of God, and you and I, twice in Revelation, are called the kingdom of God. So this is a picture of us, the bride, the wife of the lamb. What about the river of the water of life? What about the tree of life? Now, I want you to consider something. Consider something. Jerusalem in the Old Testament was very literal. 
in the New Testament, at least in Revelation, it's symbolic, it's figurative. Mount Zion in the Old Testament was a literal mount. In the New Testament, we see it as figurative. Babylon in the Old Testament was literal. There was a literal city of Babylon. Every time Babylon is mentioned in the New Testament, it is figurative. The Euphrates River, literal in the old, figurative in the new. The old serpent, that was literal in the garden. But now it is simply a representative, a symbol of Satan himself. Satan is not a literal serpent. He's a fallen angel. Yes, he spoke through and used a serpent, but he is not a serpent literally. Manna in the Old Testament, in Revelation, the hidden manna is figurative. The sea, the sun, and moon in the Old Testament obviously are literal in the new. At least when it mentions it here, it is used in a figurative fashion. Sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament were literal. Jesus being the Lamb of God is figurative. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So I'm going to suggest here that the river of the water of life and the tree of life, though they find, they find themselves in the paradise, literally are being described here as symbols. They're trying, God is trying to say something about life that we need to look at, and I'm going to spend the rest of our time doing that. First, I want you to imagine, and, and if you're going to take it literally, just also understand there is a river coursing from the throne of God. We're going to see this picture, by the way, in the Old Testament. Coursing from the throne of God down the very center of the city that's, if it's literal, is 1,400 miles wide. How wide do you think this river is? Do you think it's just a little brook coursing through? It's probably going to be this huge river. Where is the tree of life? It stands on both sides. Not two trees, one tree. So is this river half a mile wide, a mile wide? Much like, I mean, that would be small compared to many of the rivers in our world. If it's a mile wide, the tree, the, the, the tree spans a mile, half a mile in each direction with its main trunk in the center. That's the picture that we have here. It's on both sides. Or is he trying to say something about both sides of the river, life, trees bringing healing, their leaves bringing healing to the nations? What is he trying to say there? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back into the Old Testament that this is a picture of, and we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 47. Let's do that. I want us to understand, though, that this vision of a river flowing from the south side of the temple, the temple is a symbol of Christ, but it also represents the church. The river flows from the south side, and it flows toward the Arabah. The Arabah is that area that is just above the Dead Sea. It would be that portion of the Jordan River, the surrounding Jordan River that was lush and some of it was desert just over time, but the river flows in that direction and then this river flows into the Dead Sea. And listen, everywhere it flows, it brings life. This is not a literal city. This is the life, the Holy Spirit 
as he touches. And everything he touches brings life to. So I want you to just look, if you're there, at Ezekiel 47. He tries to cross, he, he, he begins to cross the river a thousand cubits from its origin, and it's ankle deep. He goes down a thousand more cubits, it's knee deep. A thousand more, it's waist deep. Now the fourth time he crosses it, he's now 4,000 cubits. So however long that would be, it's not very far from Jerusalem at all. It's basically just outside Jerusalem as it's flowing many more miles towards the Dead Sea. But there's symbolism here. When he now crosses the river the fourth time, it's a raging river. Look at verse 5. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river as if to, give a, to get a response. When I arrived there, I saw. The question is, what do you see? Now he says this, when I got to the bank, I saw a number of great trees on each side of the river. These are fruit trees. The, the fruit, it tells us in verse 12, the fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Have you ever read that somewhere before? I hope you remember. We just read it earlier. This is, this is the original picture. It's a vision. I don't believe, though, it's a vision of heaven. I believe it's a vision of today. And when Ezekiel initially tries to cross the fourth time, he, he can swim in it, but he can't cross it. Because the water is a raging river now. It is beyond his ability, his own strength to stand or swim. It will sweep him away. It is stronger than he is. I believe this is a picture now of Pentecost on. When we encounter or when you have your Pentecost. In which as a Christian you begin to experience the power of the spirit in this life. And it is greater than your strength. It will do through you far greater than what you can do on your own. Jesus in John 7 said that, it's the, that, there, that the Holy Spirit wells up within you. It, he is a river that courses within you and flows from out of you. The river is within you and it flows out of you. That's why, in a sense, the temple is not only Jesus, but the temple is also the church, the river flowing out from us. This river is that power of the Holy Spirit when we experience our Pentecost, when we are baptized in His Spirit, when we are filled with His Spirit, when we learn to fully rely on the Spirit of God. That is when the Spirit flows through us more and more in an excelling fashion in which it touches people's lives. In which the Spirit of God actually begins to speak through us. Words that do what? Bring life. Life. Because the Spirit is flowing through you. Two things he saw. A raging river 
the Spirit of God overwhelming us, using us, doing greater things than we ever could do on our own. And what does he see on the bank? Fruit trees. First time he sees fruit trees on both sides of the bank, everywhere. And the Spirit of God, the purpose then of the Spirit of God in us and overwhelming us and using us is to produce fruit. And it's not just fruit, our own actions. It's not just our character, but it's that character that touches others' lives. And it actually, he says, the leaves bring healing to the nation. Church, can you understand that you are that fruit tree? I mean, some of you already knew that you were kind of fruity, but the truth is that your fruit impacts, it. the leaves bring healing. Your words, your actions can bring healing to people. Man, I want to live my life like this. Like I, I am constantly, the, 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 the Spirit of God is overwhelming me like this, sweeping me away as I fully rely upon him. And that's scary, but as you fully rely upon him and his power works through you, there is fruit, fruit trees on each side, fruit that comes from your life, words that you speak, actions that you do that touch people's lives. Now, this, I believe, is a picture of what the Spirit does in us on earth. As you read further in this, and I just don't have time to do that, because I've got about five minutes to wrap up, but we discover that there are marshes and swamps that the river does not touch. They are left for salt. When it says a little bit further down in verse 8, it says, He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea, that is the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes, now the NIV says fresh. That is a fine translation. It's more an interpretation. The literal word there is Rapha. Jehovah Rapha means the Lord, my healer, our healer. Rapha means and how it's, the, the tense that it's used here is, it's literally translated healed. Wherever the river flows into the Dead Sea, it heals. Now, when you heal salty waters, because the Dead Sea is so salty, there's no life in it, that means it's becoming fresh. So I understand why they're translating it fresh, but understand it means healed. That wherever the Spirit of God flows in your life and through your life, the intention is to heal. Not just physical healing, that's great, laying hands on people healing, but to speak words that heal, not words that slander, not words that tear down, but words that heal. God wants to use you, church, listen, he wants you to use you to heal the nations. Wow. Maybe we feel some responsibility in this. Maybe a bit over heal the nations. Well, to do that, that means you heal by God using you, the people around you who will heal the people around them and the people around them and the people around them and eventually you reach the nations. That's the image that we have here. Everywhere the spirit flows, 
Everywhere it flows, from the next person to the next, through the church, one person to another, impacting one after the other, it brings healing. See, in this life, we get to experience heaven in part. Your salvation is in part. Now, I don't mean to say that you're partly saved. You're fully saved. But you experience the salvation in part. Because sin is, is there. We, were to be, we are saved from or out of our sin, but we still can sin. In heaven, no more of that. In, in this life, we're completely forgiven, okay? Don't misunderstand me. But we trip up over sin, even though salvation is being rescued from it. In heaven, no more sin. No more trips, no more stumbles into sin and into evil and things that harm. And so consequently, we are saved in part, as long as you understand what I mean by that, but in heaven, fully. We will have full redemption then. That's God buying us and us being his and all of the inheritance. And right now, we have that inheritance, but because of our fallibility and our stumbling and in, we, we tend to live in that inheritance only in part. And so now it's an in part, but then it's going to be everything that he has promised in full. And so we experience this restoration, this life in part now. God wants to use you in part now, but in heaven, church, we are every day going to be used to encourage and build up and then I think some of us, we have this picture of perfection in heaven that basically means we know everything. We are filled with character, not just no sin, but we are filled with character to the max. There's no room for growth. If there is no room for growth at all in heaven, I kind of understand the good place then. Because there's no room to grow. There's no room to learn. There's no room, you just... You, everything's the same. Church, we are driven. God, God placed us. God placed in us this drive to grow. Are you aware of that? That drive to grow, that gr drive to excel, that drive to, what did God say in the beginning, Genesis 1, 27 and 28? He said to subdue the earth. We're trying to subdue the earth, and we're doing it in a very impartial way and the earth is broken because of the fall but then it won't be church just imagine we're going to look at that a little bit more hebrews 2 how all things were to be placed under man's feet but they're not right now because of this problem of sin and what will it mean then in part now the spirit of god flows through you touches lives then it will be it will we will grow in it and and it will touch it will be in full Right now, we are experiencing this flow of the river. For me, at age 14, my brother witnessed to me. I gave my heart to Christ. I was saved. I experienced this river. Two years later, I experienced uh, a, a growth and an empowering of that spirit. And since that day, trying to yield to that spirit and be used by that spirit to do what he's called me to do, bear fruit and bring healing. That's, that's what I'm driven by. I do get tripped up by sin. I do lose focus. Church, let's not lose focus. 
You people are called to bring healing. You people are called to bring the gospel and salvation through you. Truth that heals through you, in part now, in full then. That division in a relationship of yours that is just not being completely healed now, it will then. That disease that plagues you now, that you're being maybe healed in part now, will be completely gone then. Fullness of life then. That struggle with a certain sin now in which you have obtained partial victory over in this life, completely gone, completely victorious over then. That hurt in which your present circumstances seems to constantly remind you of that hurt. Do you follow what I'm saying? feels like sometimes you're, you go through something and it reminds you of a past hurt and it feels like a knife just twisting in the gut. That's going to be gone. The shame and the regrets that you've been set free from, but they still nag you. In this life. They're like that pesky dog. Nipping at your heels. Wearisome. Completely gone then. In part now. Fully then. Healing and freedom and life in part now. In full then. This is our rock solid hope. This is what we long for. There's something in our hearts. That should yearn for heaven. That should yearn for the fullness of his kingdom. We will have it. It will be ours. We were born for that, Scripture tells us. In the meantime, right now, church, look forward to that day. We're going to talk about the intermediate state in, in which we will be living literally in heaven where God is. And, but right now we're talking about heaven coming to earth. In this life, then, we look ahead to that it encourages us. It constantly reminds us in this life, sacrifice is so completely worth it. Because you know that by not, not partaking in that sin and allowing Christ to be formed in you, the rewards then will be so amazing, so fulfilling. It is worth everything that we give up now. How about the martyrs? Some of them in 20... I remember reading a book, Borden of Yale. Man, a powerful man of prayer, evangelistic, goes to Yale University, starts a ministry. It's like God's man of power for the hour. It was, he's an amazing testimony. He, I'm trying to remember, uh, meningitis. He obtains meningitis. And in his early 20s, he dies. Really? God? I don't get it. Church, everything that he left behind, everything that he sacrificed for, it was only in part fulfilled on earth. And the ministry that God began to give him, the healing that he began to give through Christ's words, in full then. Church, there is no sacrifice that you can surrender and forego. No sacrifice that you can ever give that will not be worth it for then. I'm just going to encourage you. This week, think about this passage in Ezekiel. How can God's life flow through you now? Be willing to make the sacrifice so that there's no blocking of that flow of God's river through you. 
that you're pressing in, that you want him more than anything in this world, you will never regret any sacrifice in this world then. Can you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, as we are digging into your word, don't let us just leave having learned something about heaven. And I pray, God, that that truth would really be settling well in our hearts. But God, may we leave here changed because the Spirit of God has spoken to our heart, has called us to action, has called us to, called us to fix our eyes once again on Christ and on the prize that he's called us to. And so I just ask you, Father, encourage every single heart here tonight to live fully for you this week. What a joy, what a privilege to do that. Spirit of God, flow through us. Touch and change the people around us by that spirit. Please, God, in Jesus' name we pray.